time, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and get out your Bibles. We're going to be in John 4 this morning. John 4. Um, you can uh, pull that up on your cellular mobile device, or if you've got your Bible with you this morning, uh, that's awesome as well. John 4, and I'm going to invite our readers to come forward. Uh, as we. It's, it's a little bit longer of a story, so I invited a couple folks um, to uh, read this uh, so that we can read this together. John 4, beginning with verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where, you, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. She replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, I am he. 
Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right. Thank you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day, this gathering of your saints, your people, saints and sinners among us, God, for each of us are both. And so, God, as we consider your word this morning, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the 1840s and 50s, there was a guy by the name of Edward Kendall. He wasn't anyone special, but he taught Sunday school, and he liked to work with uh, junior high boys. And so what Edward Kendall did is he would gather a group of boys. Maybe some of you have taught Sunday school before. You know the drill. You get a group of people in a room, and you talk about the Bible, and you talk about Scripture, you talk about faith. In 1855, he had a group of rowdy boys, shall we say. And again, if you've ever taught Sunday school, you occasionally get a class of rowdy boys. And he, in 1855, he had a, rowdy, a group of rowdy boys, and he thought, I need a new plan. I need a new strategy. And so he decided to go and meet each one of these boys outside of the church walls, go to a place that was a little more comfortable for them, and share Jesus with them. And so that's what he did, is he went and met them on their home turf, I guess, if you will. 
And so one of the uh, rowdy young boys uh, was a young man uh, by the name of Dwight. And uh, Dwight worked at a shoe store. And so uh, Kendall went into this shoe store and he was really nervous. And so he left the shoe store because he wasn't quite sure what he was going to say. He went back into the shoe store and he invited Dwight to come over to sit down and have a conversation. And in that moment, that young man surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And Dwight grew up to become D.L. Moody. He became an evangelist. And D.L. Moody traveled all over the country. You probably know the story of D.L. Moody. He traveled all over the country uh, uh, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And one day at one of his uh, tent uh, revivals, there was a young man by the name of Wilbur Chapman. And in that moment when uh, D.L. Moody invited the people to do to surrender their lives to Jesus, Wilbur Chapman surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And he became an evangelist, and he started traveling around the country as well, sharing Jesus with other people. And at one of his revivals, there was a young man there. He was actually a former sports player. He was retired. He surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. We know him as... Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday became an evangelist, and he started traveling around, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with different people. And as he shared his uh, faith in Jesus Christ, there was a young man by the name of Mordecai, Mordecai Ham. And you know what happened? Mordecai Ham surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Now, if your name is Mordecai, your professional options are limited, right? And he became a preacher, and he traveled around sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with lots and lots of people. And in 1934, at one of his tent revivals, he showed up in North Carolina. There was a 16-year-old boy in attendance on that day, and he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. That young boy, of course, is Billy Graham. Billy Graham has shared the good news of Jesus Christ with over 2.2 billion people on the planet. Rewind. When Edward Kimball was gathered together with those Sunday school boys, those rowdy boys, can you imagine in his mind him thinking, because of my Sunday school class, millions and billions of people are going to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. I doubt it. I think he was just trying to stay alive and not kill those boys. And he was laser focused on sharing and meeting those boys where they were at in their lives. And so just really, you know, before we really get into the story much this morning, I want to ask you, who are those people in your life? Maybe one, two, three, maybe a handful of people in your life that you're pouring into, that you're walking alongside, that maybe you're inviting them to walk with Jesus and learn about Jesus. And I know what you're thinking. I could never do that. I don't have the skills of Jim Pitzer, right, to teach about the Bible. 
there is only one Jim Pitzer, right, who's got those skills and talents. Or maybe you're thinking, I don't have the patience of Tim Moore to work with our junior high and senior high kids to invest in those young people. I'm out. Or maybe you're thinking of John Petrillo and you're like, I couldn't stand up there with a microphone and and preach and do what John does. Right? We all got excuses why we couldn't be Edward Kimball in the world today. But the story we're going to read about this morning is perhaps the most unlikely evangelist to ever walk on the planet. The woman at the well, right? To our knowledge, she wasn't terribly gifted. We don't know about her education level. We don't know about her skills, her talents. We, we don't know much about her. But what she had was a testimony. And in her testimony, lots of lives were changed. So, of course, the story begins. Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem up to back his hometown, Galilee region. Takes about four days, five days, maybe six days. It was hot and dusty if you were going to make a straight route. But Jesus wasn't going to make a straight route. He was going to go a way that the scripture tells us in John 4. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus didn't have to go to Samaria. In fact, most people didn't go through Samaria, they went around Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. And what John is telling us is that Jesus had a divine appointment with someone, someone who didn't even know. Jesus didn't have a a big crusade planned. He was planning to meet with one woman, this divine appointment at a well. Now, for those of us who live uh, in 2022, we hear and we think about a well, we we get a well, We, we understand the concept of a well. But for most of us, if we want water, we just go to the faucet, right, and turn on the tap. We don't think too much about what a well symbolizes, what it signifies in the richness of this symbol of a well. And what this well represents, it certainly represents life coming to the well, but it's temporary life because, of course, you got to keep coming back to the well. And so there's this well where Jesus meets this woman. And this well signifies all that is temporary in this world, temporary satisfaction. Because, of course, if you go to a well, you're thirsty again. I think it's ironic that here we are 2,000 years later, we have lots of modern-day wells that we continue to go to, we continue to look at, that we go to to, to quench our thirst, to feel and experience satisfaction in our lives. And so this morning, I just kind of want to lay out a couple different categories of wells in our own lives, places where we get our thirst quenched, places where we receive temporary satisfaction. And the first place I think we go is to accomplishments. We go to the, the, the well of accomplishments or the well of what's next. And this begins very early on in our lives, even as little kids growing up. 
We spend a lot of our time at home in the four walls of our home, and then we see our siblings. They get on a bus, and they go off to school, and they come home, and they tell us all about their day at school. And we think to ourselves, just as a little child, I can't wait to go to school. Because when I get to school, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to have a group of friends. We're going to do lots of play things. It's going to be really, really fun. I'm going to come home and my parents are going to smother me with love. I can't wait to get to school. And then when you get to elementary school, you're like, this is awesome for about a week, right? Because when you're in elementary school, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty fun for a while. But you hear stories about those kids going off to junior high. And junior high sounds so much better because in junior high, you don't just stay in a classroom all day, but that every, at about on every hour, you get to go around to different classrooms. And it sounds so much more chaotic and so much more fun. And there's so many more people in junior high. And by the way, there's sports and music and drama. There's just so much more in junior high. And when you're in elementary school, junior high seems pretty awesome. And when you get to junior high, then you're going to be satisfied. And then you get to junior high. And it's pretty cool for about a week, right? Because you hear the stories about the high school kids, the big kids, right? And you can't wait to be a big kid. And so you spend your days going through junior high, waiting and waiting and waiting and anticipating and hoping. And you think in your mind, when you get to high school, then you're going to be satisfied. And you get to high school. And you're not so satisfied, right? Maybe for a week, it's kind of fun, it's kind of neat. But one of the things you learn about when you get to high school is that there is a group of kids who've got their driver's license, right? They've got real freedom. And you think to yourself, oh, when I get my driver's license, that's going to be the day. That is going to be the day when I am going to be fully satisfied. I am going to be in my happy place. I can't wait to get my driver's license. And then the day arrives, you get your driver's license. It's pretty fun. It's pretty fun for a while. But then you start talking to the seniors, right? And they're graduating, and they're going off into the world. They've got real freedom, right? They get to now do things outside of high school, outside of the home. Man, I can't wait till I graduate from high school because when I graduate from high school, then it's going to be really good. Then I'm going to have, you know, that peace in my life. Then I will have arrived. And it's great, right? For a little bit, you get out in the world, maybe you go to college. College is fun for about a week. And then you realize tests, papers. College is kind of like high school, right? Only more work, more stress. And you spend all your years going through college thinking to yourself, man, when I get out of college, it's going to be awesome. Then I'll have arrived because then I'm going to get a job. I'm going to make money and I'm going to have freedom and it's going to be awesome. And then you graduate from college. It's awesome. It's great, right? But then you get a job. And your boss is kind of a jerk. And your paycheck isn't what you thought it was going to be. You got to work. I mean, now you're on a schedule, right? Now somebody else owns your time. Oh, if I could just get a promotion. If I could just move, if I could just get, you know, a little bit bigger paycheck. 
And so many people spend their lives bouncing from job to job or moving around in the company, thinking all the time, if I can just get to that next level, that next layer, that next paycheck, then I'll have arrived, then I'll be satisfied. And maybe that's some of your story. You, you, you've gotten the, the paycheck, the great job, and you know, really good status in the company. You're like, now what? You're not really sure what's next. Retirement, right? Because the one thing you don't have at this point in time is freedom to do whatever you want because you still got to go to work. I can't wait till I retire because when I retire, everything is going to be really, really good. It's going to be awesome. When I retire, I will have arrived and I will finally be satisfied. And the stories I hear from people who go into retirement without a, a plan for something meaningful and purposeful. I mean, you can only play so much golf. They're bored. And they lose meaning and purpose. And studies show that if people don't have a good plan when they retire, they oftentimes die. As I talk to people and they tell me, well, when I, I finally retired started having health issues. A lot of people will spend their golden years sitting in a lazy boy while watching reruns of the Andy Griffith show. Oh, you've arrived. The truth is, this whole idea of moving through life and chasing accomplishments, the well of accomplishments or the well of what's next, it's not satisfying. You're just going to keep coming back to the well looking for more. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not chasing after the next thing. Maybe for you, you keep coming to the well of stuff, things, right? And again, this starts out when we're, we're just kids. You, get, you, you think to yourself, man, if I could just get that Lego set, when I, if I could just get that set and put it together, then I would be satisfied, then I would be happy. You get it together and you're like, man, I would love to get that bike. That bike looks so awesome. And so you get a bike and you think to yourself, man, my older brother is driving a car. When am I going to get a car? If I could just get a used car, I don't care what kind of car it is. I don't care if it, it hardly drives at all. I just want a car, then I'll be happy. And then you think to yourself, oh, if I could just get an apartment, get out from under my parents' thumb, right? A little bit of freedom. If I could just get an apartment, if I could get a better car, if I could just get a house, if I could just get that bigger house, that better car, that new refrigerator, that pair of... I mean, the list goes on and on, right? We think to ourselves, if I could just get the stuff, whatever the stuff is. And, and so uh, I googled uh, McMansion. So if this is your house, you've arrived, right? But I guarantee you, the person who's living in this house, they're probably thinking, oh, I need a boat, I need an RV. I need a second home. I mean, it never ends when it comes to stuff, right? It's a well that we just keep coming back to. We're thirsty over 
and over and over. It's temporary satisfaction. You know, sometimes some of you, uh, the UPS uh, or the FedEx guy or the Amazon guy shows up. A package shows up at your door. You don't even know it's inside, right? Because you're just ordering stuff so fast, left and right. It's like, huh, I wonder what that is. I must have ordered it. I mean, be honest. How many of you, a package has shown up and you have no idea what it is? My hand is up, okay? I mean, this is our lives. We are all tempted to fall into this well of stuff. This thing that we think it's going to bring us satisfaction, but it leaves us and wants us thirsting for more. So maybe not, you're not into stuff. Maybe you're not into kind of uh, the next thing uh, in life, but maybe you're into people. Maybe you're looking to people as someone in your life. This is certainly the issue with the woman at the well, right? She had five husbands. Now, we don't know what happened to these husbands. They could have died for sure. But I think we can all agree she probably had some guy issues here. She was living with a guy at the time, not married. She had people issues. And and that conjecture on my part, I can't help but wonder if she continued to look after at guy after guy after guy to fulfill her, to complete her, to help her to feel better about herself. Maybe she used men in such a way that they could never fulfill that need in her, that desire in her. Maybe she was looking for guys to rescue her and take care of her. I don't know. We don't know. The story doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that all of us struggle with looking at other people in our lives to fill something that they cannot fulfill. Human connection, right? 26 seasons of The Bachelor, 18 seasons of The Bachelorette. All these stories about people trying to find love in human connection. I'm not sure any of those relationships have ever lasted. Maybe one has lasted for, you know, a short time. I don't know. But in the words of the prophet and theologian Johnny Lee, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love too many faces. I think we're all tempted to look at those people in our lives, in our families, to do something for us that they were never created to do. This is why pornography is so big in the world today. It's a $97 billion industry globally every year. In the United States, 10 to $12 billion dollars. That's what pornography is. It's temporary satisfaction. It never satisfies. That's where this woman is at, at the well of things that are temporary. Jesus shows up. He says, you're looking in all the wrong places. If you want temporary satisfaction, look to the world. But if you want eternal and complete and full satisfaction, you're looking at him. I am the living water, and you will never thirst anymore. 
What Jesus is saying is you were created to be in relationship with God. Only Jesus can fulfill us, can give us that peace. I think about when God made the world and he made Adam and Eve. And he took the dirt together and and it says he formed a man. And he breathed into his nostrils the ruach, the breath of life. And in that moment, I can about see Adam looking at the face of God. And there's this instant connection, this, this completeness, this looking. We were made to be in relationship with God, to be face-to-face with God. And this is what Jesus is describing, that we will go through life looking at all these wells, these temporary ways of satisfaction, we'll never find it until we find the one who gives us ultimate and eternal satisfaction and peace, the living water of Jesus Christ, his very presence. Now, it's interesting, as Jesus and this woman at the well are having this conversation, everything changes, and nothing changes. I mean, she's still, you know, an outcast in society, She's still got five husbands. She's still got a guy back home. She's still a woman. She's still got not much power, influence. She's still the the lady that everybody gossips about. Nothing's changed. But in that moment, everything has changed. Because she's no longer going to the well of temporary satisfaction. Now, all of a sudden, in that moment, she surrenders her life and says, I'm done living my life looking for temporary satisfaction. I want this living water, what Jesus is offering. You can just read about this in the text. All of a sudden, she experiences peace, this joy, this satisfaction, finally. And what's the result? What's the result of this woman encountering Jesus and receiving this living water, his very presence? It's in John 4, uh, 29. She goes off, runs back to town. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She can't help it. She's She's like, I've been changed. Everything is different now in my life. Come and see this guy. He knows everything about me. He has healed me, and he has given me peace. I'm no longer looking for the temporary things of this world to satisfy me. I have now found the one who satisfies me for all of eternity. I've got peace. I've got hope. You know, I once heard someone say the difference between a biography and a testimony is that a biography is about what you have done or what you have accomplished. And a testimony is about what Jesus has done or what Jesus has accomplished through you. I think so many times we go through our lives writing our own biography, writing our own resume, paying attention to all those things that draw attention to ourselves. That's not necessarily bad. But along the way, we need to start thinking about what is our testimony? What is my story of how I came to the end of myself? 
What is my story about how I was doing this and doing this and doing this? And I'm like, I'm stuck. I can't get any further. I don't know where to go. I have come uh, to this place where I don't know what to do. And we have surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then he has gotten us through it. He has taken us to the next level. He has uh, taken us to this whole new place. That's what a testimony is. I mean, if I were to ask all of you good Christians here this morning and online, who wants a testimony? I think all of us would probably, wouldn't you like to have a testimony? Wouldn't that be awesome to have a testimony? But the problem with a testimony is it comes with a test. You don't just get a testimony. It's not just given to you. And a test is something, it's a barrier, something you run up against. And I got news for you. All of our barrier is you. My barrier is me. And when we come to the end of ourselves, that's the test in the testimony. Are you going to surrender your life and say, I'm done doing it my way? I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what a testimony is. The story continues. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. The story begins with a divine appointment. Jesus shows up and meets with one woman. Not a powerful woman, not an educated woman that we're aware of, a woman who has broken relationships, a woman who is at the bottom of the social ladder, a woman, we don't even know her name, we don't even know if she had a title. A woman that we don't know that she had much for resources. Jesus had a testimony. This is what Jesus did in my life. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to share my faith with someone else. I don't know how to share with someone that I've come to the end of myself and I've allowed Jesus to take over and he's given me living water. A couple weeks ago, I was meeting with one of my life groups. Uh, I'm part of a couple life groups as well. I know many of you are. I think we've got about 72 of you uh, who are participating in life group, which is awesome. Uh, we are a congregation that likes to get together in small groups and um, pray together and read scripture together and just do life together and, and share what's going on in our lives and you know our hardships and our struggles. And one of my life groups is I meet with a group of pastors uh, twice a month. We get together on Zoom. They're from all over the country. And we get together twice a month and we mostly moan and groan and complain about you. <laughs> Not really, but a little bit. And there's just something about being around other pastors to just kind of share the camaraderie and the challenges of of what's going on. We don't just talk about ministry and what's going on in the life of our congregations. We also talk about our personal lives, too. 
our, our uh, facilitator, our group facilitator. He's a guy in uh, Texas, Houston, Texas. And Matt, you know, he, he checks in with us, you know, whenever we get together online, he says, what's going on with your families? How's your marriage? What's going on with your kids? Not just about ministry. So what's going on with me and my family and all my relationships that are close to me as well? And I love being a part of this life group. And uh, so a couple weeks ago, I uh, meeting with my, my life group, and uh, Matt uh, says, hey, how many of your neighbors do you know around in your community, the people that live in your neighborhood? And he gave us this chart. He calls it a neighborhood grid. Who is my neighbor? And I thought to myself, oh, I kind of know a lot of my neighbors. Honestly, I don't know what your neighbors are like. Nearly every single one of my neighbors has since moved when we moved in nine years ago. Our, our neighborhood is like a revolving door. So lot, I don't think it's me. Anybody else? Is this true with anybody else? Maybe it's me. Maybe that I'm the reason why they're all moving out. I don't know. It just all of a sudden occurred to me. <laughs> anyways, that wasn't part of the sermon. So anyways, I'm thinking to myself, okay, as every new neighbor has moved in, I've always had really good intentions to go over there and knock on the door, to bring them some cookies, to get to know their name, maybe when they're out mowing the lawn, to go over and you know just spend some time with them. I've kind of done that a little bit. And so in my mind, when, when Matt gave us this assignment saying, who's your neighbor? I thought, well, I kind of know my neighbors. He said, well, you got to write it down. Like, okay, I'll write it down. And so I'm writing it down. So I'm starting to write down my neighbors all around me. I had two ahas. One, I don't really know my neighbors all that well. I don't. I mean, some of them I know their names. Some of them I know their jobs. Some of them I know their dog poops in my yard. I mean, it's just kind of all that stuff, right? I don't really know most of them. That was kind of the first punch in the gut. Matt's right. But I got to tell you, the bigger aha for me in this moment is that I know enough about my neighbors is that they're home this morning. Most of my neighbors do not go to church. In fact, I can only, I know one family and they live way down the road. They go to Vail. The rest of them, not regular churchgoers. I live in a spiritual desert. And I got to thinking to myself, who in the world is going to share Jesus with these people? I've been in this house nine years, and I got to thinking, you know, God didn't just put us at 3119 Old Jamestown Road to live in a house. He put us there to be missionaries to this community, these people around us. And I got to tell you, many of these people around us, they look different than us. They are at different life stages than us. There's a lot of barriers, a lot of reasons why I'm not knocking on their doors, if I'm really honest. And so my challenge for you this morning is, is the challenge for me. Who are your neighbors? Who are your neighbors? What are you going to do about it? How are you going to get to know them? Are you going to just keep pulling in your garage, letting the garage door go down as they go looking for the temporary things of this world? You've got living water, right? 
You've got it. You've got the message. You've got the gospel. So what are you going to do with it? You're just going to hoard it? You're just going to keep it to yourself? Or are you going to share it with people who are quenching? They are starving for the gospel. They are starving for connection. They are starving for something that is eternal and permanent. And there is only one person, and his name is Jesus. All the rest, just temporary, temporary. So I know John's got a handout for you this morning uh, to put on the uh, welcome table. I've got a handout for you too. I want to, I, I dare you. I dare you to take one of these sheets of paper home. And not just think about who your neighbors are, but actually write it down. What do you know about these people? I dare you. Because I think when you do, when you actually go through that exercise, you will be convicted. As I've been convicted. I got work to do. I'm just telling you my problem. I haven't figured it out. I have to tell you, since a couple weeks ago and all this kind of aha moment, I haven't knocked on a single door. Okay? Just full disclosure. I haven't figured this out. But I want to figure it out. And I want to figure it out with you all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are indeed a God um, who quenches our thirst, not just in a temporary way, God, but for all of eternity. And so, God, we are all guilty, myself first and foremost, of looking for the temporary things of the world to satisfy us. Stuff, relationships, achievement, or moving to the next level, the What's next phase of life? And God, like the woman at the well, we feel inadequate. We feel like we don't have much to offer. But God, you gave her a testimony. And you invite us to have a testimony as well. So Lord, I pray that today we would surrender our lives, maybe for the first time, or again, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because when we surrender our lives, God, and say, I'm done living for the ways of the world and put our hope and trust in you, then we can experience the peace that passes understanding. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for, God, the ways in which you invite us and challenge us to share your good news with others. Maybe there's an Edward Kendall in this room this morning, God. We trust in you that you use our good work to glorify you so that future generations may know you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.